Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're focusing on the contributions of women in industry, from the automobile to the guitar. Coming up later, author Sue Macy will join us to examine how the rise of the automobile impacted women, from their daily lives to their careers. Her new book is called Motor Girls, How Women Took the Wheel and Drove Boldly into the 20th Century. But first, did you know women built Gibson guitars during World War II? Their story would not have been told had a Connecticut law professor not taken interest in an old photo. John Thomas is professor of law at Quinnipiac University and author of Kalamazoo Gals, the story of extraordinary women and a few men who built Gibson's World War II banner guitars. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned, you teach law. You're also a musician, a guitarist. How did you pick up the instrument? I picked up the instrument probably the way most people of my generation and my gender and my racial heritage did. I was, uh, at this point, uh, living in the suburbs of Phoenix, Arizona, a young white man listening to what was originally Chicago blues music coming back across Atlantic from another young white man, not quite as young, named Eric Clapton, and uh, was introduced to my own cultural heritage through somebody across the Atlantic and, and just went deeper and deeper, learned all the solos off his records and slowly worked back and learned the original players and became enamored of historical American music. Would you say it's your passion? It is my passion. Why not become a professional musician? Well, I guess the the, the uncomfortable truth is I'm not quite good enough. Uh, It's also a very, very hard road. And I think I missed my real calling, which was when I was a kid, there was no ADHD, but I could have been the poster boy for ADHD. So I really thrive on having different things in my life, a very different kinds of projects. So I look, like doing law. I like playing music. I'm a gigging musician. But I also like writing for non-legal journals and music and what have you. So I think I, I just got lucky and sort of fell into a place where I could sort of serve my ADHD in a relatively productive way. So while teaching at Quinnipiac University, you're also freelancing, writing articles based on the music industry? That's right. I sometimes, I'm embedded with musicians. I went on the road with Jackson Brown for five weeks one time and just did a piece with Derek Trucks of the Tedeschi Trucks Band and that sort of thing. And so, um, again, it sort of serves me as maybe my artistic uh, aspect of my personality. I can serve with that, but also the professional goals I can serve through my students and publications in professional journals. And that's how you came across this first uh, snippet of who were the Kalamazoo gals? When did you first hear about them? So nobody knew about them until I found them, right? And I, in one of those crazy... It was a scoop. It was a scoop. I didn't know it at the time, unfortunately. Uh, one of these crazy projects, I'm doing a piece for a music journal of some kind, and I can't remember the piece, but it had a historical component. And I came across a photograph, and I don't recall whether it was online or in a book, but it was a bunch of women that looked, oh, sort of 1940s-ish, standing in front of the Gibson Guitar Factory, which I later learned was in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And something about the picture intrigued me, but also, I think, kind of troubled me. I couldn't figure out why there were just women in front of a guitar factory in that time period. I later learned, I eventually got an original print of that photograph from one of the women in that photograph, and dated June 1944. So I learned it was a 1944 World War II era photograph. 
And I just started digging, and it led me to this book. We have a, a copy of the photograph in studio with us. And since we're on the radio, can you describe? It's black and white, obviously, but what, tell us what you're looking at. Well, it's black and white. It's a bunch of women. It looks sort of uh, springish to me. It turned out it was June, so it must have been a sort of chilly day. There are women wearing some sweaters and such. And they're all around the same age. It's about 70 or so women. They're all, it looks like, late teens, early 20s, which would have been exactly the sort of workforce that companies during World War II in the U.S. turned to. And um, they look sort of amused um, and just intriguing. I can't figure out what they're doing. Uh, what I, when I look at this picture today, my eyes go to the woman sitting in front. She is, from my right, about five people over, and she's got a flower in her hair. And that is the first woman I met. Uh, I tracked these women down, and I, I met eventually 12 of these women in this photograph. And she pointed herself out and said, oh, that's me. I always wore a flower in my hair. Uh, so I, I now see it as uh, a very personal, emotional, and sort of romanticized photograph. But at the time, it was just this mystery. What are these women doing there? Uh, uh, why are there no men? And it's a guitar factory. You decided to do research to find out more about uh, these women. Were you in Connecticut at the time? I was in Connecticut at the time. So lots of travel back and forth to Kalamazoo, Michigan? I did a lot of travel back and forth. Uh, initially, I wanted to find out whether guitars were made by the company during World War II. I was lucky to find a book written by the fellow who was the personnel director during the late 30s through the World War II era, so he would have hired those women. He wrote a company history in the late 1970s, early 1970s. His name was Julius Belson, and he wrote that the company built no musical instruments during the war whatsoever. Oh, well, these women must be doing something else. I eventually talked my way into the factory, or the corporate headquarters in Nashville, Tennessee, took photographs of 4,400 pages of these old shipping ledgers from 1936 up past the war and counted up the instruments, and they shipped Gibson about 25,000 instruments during the war. So now I've got, I don't know, a lie, a cover-up, a misconception, and I really want to find those women because if those women made the guitars, then there's another wrinkle to this mystery that the company denied making instruments while women were making them. So that's what set me out to go to find these women. I wanted to find one was my goal. So their story was they weren't producing Gibson guitars during the war. What were they producing, according to the story? According to the story, they were doing just wartime work. And Gibson did do a lot of wartime work. Lots of companies during World War II converted to wartime projects. Gibson had great talent in electronics because they'd already built amplified guitars. So they could do radio work, radar work, that sort of thing. Good woodworking skills. So Gibson was able to build the inner struts that supported airplane wings or the pontoons for amphibious aircraft. And Gibson was the only company in the U.S. that won three E of Excellence Awards from the military for all the wonderful service they did. So Gibson did indeed do a lot of military work. You mentioned you talked your way into uh, the Nashville headquarters and you were able to take photos of their shipping ledgers. How did you do that? So it took a long time. It probably was about a year. I went back. I started with customer service and sort of worked my way up all the way to the secretary for the CEO's office. And at each step of the way, I was politely told that, one, we don't have any shipping records. And two, if we had them, you couldn't see them because we're privately held, not a public company. But there were these rumors. There were people who contacted me and said they had access and they could look up a guitar on these records for me for $5 a guitar. Now, this isn't, I did not know there were 25,000 guitars. But even so, it sounded a little outrageous, but they wouldn't let me see the records. So I kept pushing. And eventually, a mid-level executive, a vice president, I contacted him by email. He said, I don't think we have these things. But I'll look, and about 20 minutes later, I get a message back from him. I'm sitting here with a book open, and the date of 1938 shows we shipped a guitar to Les Paul that day. You can come down and see these whenever you want. 
Two days later, I was down there. You started on this journey. You actually have the the facts in front of you that indeed there were guitars being produced during the war. You see this picture. Now you want to track down these women. I want to track down the women, but I have no idea how to do it because the photograph I've got is almost 70 years old. So I'm guessing this might be a slice of the demography that hasn't moved a lot. You know, if these women have all moved or if they're no longer alive, I, lo- I do the calculation. They're going to be in their 80s and 90s. So I'll be lucky to find one. So I hit on what I, I just get lucky. I think, you know, what I'll do is I'll advertise in newspapers. So I advertise in the Kalamazoo Gazette and the little newspapers in all the contiguous communities. It's surrounded by little townships. And I just put in the advertisement. I'm John Thomas. I live out east. I'm coming to town. I would like to talk to you if you worked for Gibson during World War II. It didn't specify man or woman, just if you had. I'll be here these days. And I ran it periodically every three or four days for several weeks, uh, hoping to find somebody. Who was the first woman that responded that you were able to meet? Well, uh, the, the women themselves didn't respond, although women did. So none of the women themselves contacted me. Sometimes their daughters, but more often their granddaughters. So I got these phone calls that my grandmother worked for Gibson. Uh, I'm sure she'll meet with you. I'll convince her to meet with you. And I said, great. And I booked a flight. I kept in contact with these granddaughters and sometimes the women themselves and flew to Kalamazoo. Uh, some of the women gave me their addresses and invited me to their homes. The smarter ones wanted to meet me in a well-lit public place because they had no idea who I was. The first one I met was this woman named Jenny Snow. I remember distinctly as though it were yesterday, uh, land in Kalamazoo, get my rental car, drive to her home. I can still hear in my mind's ear, if you will, the gravel as it crunched under the tires as I roll up. And I sat there, turned the car off, and I thought, what am I going to do? I got no idea what I'm doing here. And I finally get out of the car and... She is actually, she was then about 90, standing with her arms crossed with the door open and says to me, oh, I thought you'd never get out. Why don't you come on in and talk to me? <laughs> this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with John Thomas. His day job is a professor of law at Quinnipiac University, but his passion is music. And a few years ago, he wrote the book Kalamazoo Gals, a story of extraordinary women and Gibson's banner guitars of World War II. We're learning a little bit about the, the journey that John took uh, to find these women who were, in fact, building Gibson guitars uh, during the war, something that the company denied. Tell us about the, the instruments that they were creating, anything different about the way they looked. Well, I got really lucky with these instruments. Um, prior to the war and after the war, Gibson was really the king of hyperbole and exaggeration in advertising copy. Every Gibson guitar was more beautiful than a southern bell, sounded more sonorous than a babbling brook. But during the war, and I learned later while women are making them, Gibson puts a little golden decal in the shape of a banner on the headstock where the tuning pegs are at the top of the guitar, and it says only a Gibson is good enough. Curiously, before and after the war, these are fantastic, unbelievable instruments. While women are making them, they're good enough. That golden decal goes on the guitars in early 1942 and disappears late 1945. So it's on the guitars just during the war. It marks the guitars that women were making. They put them on the first guitars women made. As soon as the men came back and the women seated their jobs, Gibson took the decal off. So I can identify these guitars, which is really, I think, a lucky break for me and led to some sort of pseudoscientific research that I did to try to determine whether I could distinguish the female-made guitars from the male-made guitars pre- and post-war. And why do you think they did that? Did they did the company feel that they could tell the difference in the quality of the workmanship that went into this guitar made by a woman versus a man? Well, obviously, I have no idea. The dead men tell no tales, and there aren't any men alive from that time. 
but I, I think it's probably symbolic of what Gibson thought was happening, uh, that the c- guitars would indeed be good enough, but they weren't going to brag about them. They would sort of make do during the war with what they thought was probably less than ideal craft from the workers. And when the wind came back, they'd get rid of that sort of insult really on the headstock. It's just good enough. After it came back in the war, it, was, it wasn't it was better than good enough. It was fantastic and fabulous again. You brought one with you. I'm curious how you got your hands on this uh, this Gibson Banner guitar. So this is a guitar shipped June 23, 1943. I got it from the grand-nephew of the original owner. So a, a woman bought this for her brother for a wedding present in 1943. When the original owner died, it went to the father of the man who gave it to me. He played it for a while. He died, and it sat in a case unplayed for 38 years. While I was conducting research for the book, I put up a registry of these World War II-era guitars online so I could gather information and try to, one, find out whether they really existed, and two, try to distinguish them from the guitars made pre- and post-war. And this fellow tracked me down and said he thought I should have it. As I do every time this has happened, and it's happened four times to me, I ask the person to get it appraised by a legitimate appraiser, and then I'll either buy it for that price or not. I don't want to negotiate in a situation where I might know more about the instrument than somebody else and take advantage of it. So this one came to me. It's a beautiful piece of work. Uh, It's one of 132 this model ever made, so it turned out to be a rather rare guitar. You found 12 of these women that were still living uh, that were part of this uh, workforce building uh, Gibson guitars during the war. Um, as you interviewed them, did they realize how remarkable their contribution, their stories were? They didn't, although I have a suspicion they kind of somehow knew. So these women would say, I don't know why you care to talk to me. It was just a job. Or as one woman said, it's just a crappy job. And we would talk. And of the women, of the 12, nine of the women sort of an hour or so into the conversation would say, well, I've got something I think you should see. And they walked back into a closet in the back of the house and brought out a box, which was a treasure trove of clippings, memorabilia, strings, and maybe wire cutters from their days at Gibson. And it said to me, almost to a one, and my family doesn't care about this. I don't know why I saved it. I thought, well, yeah, but you did save it. And it wasn't like it was family photographs or something that came through the Civil War. These weren't the typical things someone would save. So it was as though these women sort of knew maybe I did something unusual and maybe someday somebody will care, and I cared. What happened to these women after the war? So all but three of them went back to what they were doing before the war, which was being homemakers. And I think, again, to a one, when I asked them what happened, they would express some regret with a sigh and say, well, my husband, my boyfriend wanted me not to work. That's sort of what we did in those days. And, and there really was a, a hint of regret. I have, I have this on audio and video, so you, you can hear it yourself someday if you'd like. Um, so they ceded their jobs back to them, and they were not laid off. But it was of the gender roles of the time. They were expected to be homemakers, and the men were expected to be breadwinners. And after World War II, things went back to the way they were before the war. I should ask how uh, Gibson recruited these women. We know during uh, the war, uh, women were told around uh, the nation to support the war effort. You can uh, go into factories and do the work that the men were doing before they left. Um, how did they? Re- how did Gibson recruit these women, and what specifically were they doing in the factory? So Gibson found the women the same way I did. I did it 70 years later. They got advertisements in local newspapers. We need workers. Uh, typically didn't specify what kind of job it was, and the woman would just go down and be assigned some work in the factory, whether it be administrative work, work on wartime projects, or working on guitars. So they were putting the the strings on. They were shaping the wood. I'm curious about the development of the guitar right in your lap right here. Right. So as best I can figure, and I, I 
what I say is I have a, probably half the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle because a lot of the pieces died before I got there. And so I don't know exactly how everything happened, but the best I can figure, there were a handful of men, three, four, five at the time, who roughed out parts and handed the parts to the women. So they would rough out the neck, the big piece of wood, one which the frets are nailed into, and, ma- and hand over plates of wood that had been cut to rough size. The women would cut them to perfect size, do the bending and shaping, assemble them, and then do really what is what makes an instrument sound either good or bad or distinctive or not. And that is voicing the instrument. Determining the thickness of the top, I'll just tap it, you can hear it here. Determining the thickness of the top, they were bracing underneath to hold the instrument together so the strings don't pull the top off, and those need to be carved, sculpted, and shaped. And so the women did all of that work, and that is the work that any luthier these days would tell you is the work that determines how the instrument sounds. So how the instrument sound was really a, a function of the work of these women. Again, you found 12 women um, who were working in the Gibson factory during the war. When your book came out, uh, remind us the year and how many of them saw this, this project come to completion. What did they think? The book came out almost four years to this day. Uh, I, it took me five years to do it, so I sort of did the math and thought these women might not survive. By the time I got it out, there were six women still alive. I had a book release party in Kalamazoo at a bed and breakfast with a lovely old building, which is sort of of the times. And the surviving women and their families and the families of the women who had not, had perished came to this reception. And uh, I made a presentation, and there's a video of it up on Vimeo. And you can just hear the tears in my voice and see the tears in my eyes. It was a very, very emotional moment for me to bring to light the great work that these women did that nobody knew about while they were still there to hear it. I'm speaking with John Thomas. His book is called Kalamazoo Gals, the story of the extraordinary women and a few men who built Gibson's World War II banner guitars. When we come back from the break, we'll continue our conversation and learn about Gibson's response to Thomas's research. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today I'm talking with John Thomas. He's a law professor at Quinnipiac University, but he's also the author of a book called Kalamazoo Gals, the story of the extraordinary women and a few men who built Gibson's World War II banner guitars. We started at the beginning of the interview mentioning that Gibson guitars, they stuck to their story, that women weren't helping uh, create and build these instruments. But you proved that that was wrong. They were caught in a lie. What was Gibson's response when your book came out? So Gibson's response has been, uh, I think the best way to be put it would be schizophrenic. So initially, Gibson wouldn't talk to me. As the book is coming out, Gibson embraces it and, in fact, contacts a big guitar dealer in the Boston area to join with me, of course, to do reproductions of my personal collection, make 25 copies of each of my instruments, sell them as rare and exotic copies of important historical instruments. Uh, I was asked what it would take for me to do this. I'm not bright enough to have asked for money. So I asked that I knew there were still women in the plant. Women build the guitars. I get to inspect the prototypes and approve them. And then some portion of each sale, didn't specify percentage, go to some women's history nonprofit. Gibson embraced that. At the time, Gibson also embraced my book project. This would be Gibson's acoustic division, which is in Montana. Its corporate headquarters is still down in Nashville. There's an acoustic division building guitars up in Montana. Gibson flew me out there, had me look at the starting of the project. 
Gibson then underwrote my book release party, which was held in Seattle, flew out a vice president to talk, and it turns out uh, this is telling, on video about what a great project this is and what a great guy I am. Um, And then Gibson went silent. The BBC did an hour-long radio documentary on the book and decided to reach out to Gibson and wonder what was happening and contacted Gibson, and Gibson said two intriguing things. This was the head of global public relations. Um, Not very relatable to the public, it turns out. This woman said to BBC, we've never heard of John Thomas or his book, but he violated our copyright by accessing our shipping ledgers. The BBC then put her in contact with me, and she told me the same thing, which I said, that's kind of amusing. She said, what's amusing about that? I said, well, uh, you underwrote my book release party. You flew me out to inspect the prototypes. You had it actually set me up with airplane tickets and badges to go to a giant trade show, but later on canceled that for reasons I don't understand. And she said, well, can you prove that? I said, well, I don't have to prove anything to you, but if you want to know about it, you can go up. It's on YouTube. There's a video on YouTube about you talking about my project. And to this day, since that time, Gibson will not talk about it. Gibson did issue these 25 copies of my personal guitars, didn't reference the Kalamazoo gals or anything. The guitars are rather collectible because people in the out there in the field, the buying public knows what these guitars are. Um, but a very curious thing to me, and I don't know, the more things change, the more they, they stay the same, right? It's, it's a refusal to embrace this incredible, previously unknown contribution of women. Mm. But you've seen success with this book, and there have been projects uh, spun off of it. Tell us about um, when the book was released. There's also a CD component. So I'm about to finish the book, and my wife tells me, you know what, you need to do a recording of these guitars. And I thought, that's a that's a great idea. So that people could have a companion recording and sort of hear what these guitars sounded like. So I put out the word to collectors, and collectors, again, just sent me guitars, not asking even not only when they would get them back, but whether they'd get them back. Just an incredibly generous group of people. I ended up with, oh, I guess around 40 guitars in my living room. I wanted to record the guitars in a pristine, perfect environment. We could really hear the acoustics of the guitars. So we went down to Firehouse 12, one of the finest recording studios in the world down in New Haven. And I wanted the, a woman to give voice to women bass guitars, partly because I wanted someone who plays better than I, uh, partly because I wanted someone who sings. And so I, I came to know this woman named Lauren Sheehan who calls herself a songster. This is the person who plays traditional American music, whether it's old-time country whether it's bluegrass or whether it's blues or just old folk tunes. And we picked out about a dozen songs and we picked a dozen guitars and we recorded these so that people could hear what they sound like very distinctly. And we recorded songs that would have been played or at least could have been played on these guitars at the time. So the companion CD to the book is called The Light Still Burns. And we want to hear a track off the album, uh, When Johnny Comes Marching Home. Let's hear a little bit of it. marching home again hurrah, hurrah we'll give him a hearty welcome then hurrah, hurrah the men will cheer the boys will shout the ladies they will all turn out and we'll all feel gay when Johnny comes marching home the old church bell will peal with joy
And that's a song off of the companion CD to Kalamazoo Gals. Again, the CD called The Light Still Burns. We understand also that there is a play based off the book. There is a play based off the book. A young woman who was studying uh, drama, I think she was studying down in Tennessee, but anyway, came through Nashville on her way to enrolling in an MFA playwriting program at Western Michigan University. Happened through a bookstore in Nashville and saw this book called Kalamazoo Gals. She's headed to Western Michigan University, which is in Kalamazoo, and picks up a copy of it. She became intrigued, wrote a play. She calls the play Good Enough, a play on, if you will, at least uh, in terms of verbally, off the banner on top of these guitars that says, only a Gibson is good enough. The play won a regional award a year ago. Uh, some 70 playwrights entered a competition, anybody in Michigan or the contiguous states, and she won that award as best play, and it got a staged reading. Play then was entered in the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival Contest. In January, one, one of eight regional awards is now entered in the final contest for the play of the year for the Kennedy Center, and it receives a, we'll see a full staging production in Kalamazoo. I mentioned earlier you brought one of these beautiful banner guitars into the studio. You're a musician. Can I ask you to play something? Sure. that song you played? That's a composition from a friend of mine who uh, teaches at Belmont University in Nashville, a great guitar player named John Pell, and the, con- the composition is named The Last Time I Saw Home. And it, I like the song because it's, it, it's simple and slow and it allows the guitars to resonate so you can hear what the guitar really sounds like rather than playing lots of notes really fast. And in addition, that sort of sentimental notion, last time I saw home, this is a guitar that was unplayed for 38 years. It sort of came back, came to me through people who knew I would appreciate it. And I sort of think that same thing about this Kalamazoo Gal story, that I, I brought the story home to guitar players and to the public. Well, it's a fascinating story. Thank you so much to John Thomas, professor of law at Quinnipiac University School of Law, author of Kalamazoo Gals, the story of the extraordinary women and a few men who built Gibson's World War II banner guitars. Such a pleasure to speak with you, John. Oh, a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Coming up, we look back at the first female drivers, so-called motor girls, the subject of author Sue Macy's newest book, This Is Where We Live.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Author Sue Macy has written several books, including Wheels of Change, that describe the liberating impact the bicycle had on women's lives. Now she's turned her attention to when women began to drive in her new book for National Geographic called Motor Girls, How Women Took the Wheel and Drove Boldly into the 20th Century. Sue, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Your previous book for Nat Geo, uh, Wheels of Change, explored the history of the bicycle and its role in affording women of the late 19th century a new kind of freedom. But that all changed when the automobile came into the picture. Tell us what was being said about this idea of women behind the wheel. Well, there was definite pushback um, after women gained all these freedoms through the bicycle. Suddenly they found themselves the subject of criticism and derision as far as driving. Um, driving a car in the beginning was a, was a very dirty affair, especially if it was a gasoline-powered car. At, in the beginning, there were cars powered by steam, by electricity, and gasoline. And the, the elect, electric cars were fairly tame. They couldn't travel as far on a single charge as the gas powered cars could on a tank of gas. They couldn't go as quickly. So if any uh, car was seen as appropriate for women, it was the electric. But the gas-powered cars required the driver to crank the car before before beginning, and that, that took a lot of effort. And there are stories of men who were knocked down by the recoiling crank and thrown onto the, the ground, which was often not paved. So they ended up of mud and dirt and dust and so people thought that this sort of flew in the face of the ideas of uh, what a female should be she shouldn't be uh that strong she shouldn't be that dirty and so there was a lot of um debate on whether women should drive Uh, there was also the issue of the emotional stability of women, I guess. Some people felt that women couldn't make decisions under under pressure, as you would have to do if you came upon a busy intersection or, <laughs> or a, 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 an accident. And one man actually wrote an article saying that women shouldn't drive because they don't play baseball. And people who play baseball have to have their attention on several different things at once, and they have to have great peripheral vision. If they're a pitcher, they have to watch the runners on base and the umpire and their fielders and the batter. And so, um, so that was his argument, but he didn't take into consideration that some women might have had three children running around the house, and they required a certain amount of peripheral vision and uh, attention on more than one thing at, at one time. Uh, but that was that, that was one of the arguments. And I, I believe that man was Montgomery Rollins. Let's call him out from uh, 1909, <laughs> a, a New England banker. Was he from Connecticut by chance? I don't remember. <laughs> he could have been. He, he was. He was very successful, and he. He liked to pontificate on various subjects, and in this case, uh, the women were his victims. <laughs> yes. but, but what about women at that time? Uh, were all of them on board, or were they all? Were there also critics among, um, you know, the female population? Yeah, there were critics, and in fact, um, just about every year in the first couple of decades of the century of the twentieth uh, century, there would be articles in in the newspapers 
titled Should Women Drive? And I found quite a number of women who who agreed that uh, her her kind <laughs> were not as um, emotionally uh, ready to drive under pressure. And, and <laughs> it's disappointing, but it's part of the evolution, I guess, of, of women's uh, strength. And hopefully, at least in this country today, most people believe women are fine drivers, although you still get some pushback. Mm, um, I, I often yeah. kid to my husband that I'm the better driver of the two of us. <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, I think that there's arguments to be said for that, because women um, are often a little bit more deliberate and perhaps more conservative, not everybody. And now, despite what they said back then, uh, having your wits about you and not reacting immediately is sometimes more useful in, in situations when you're driving. So despite that public sentiment out there that women should not be behind the wheel, that didn't stop some women from getting behind the wheel. In your book, you talk uh, about uh, women like Alice Ramsey and Joe Newton Cuneo. Tell us about them. Yeah, uh, well, Alice Ramsey was the first woman to drive drive a car across the country, and she did it in 1909, and she was actually sponsor, so, sponsored by the Maxwell Automobile Company. So she drove a Maxwell, and her, the dealerships across the country were there to provide any parts that she needed, but the stipulation was that she would do all the driving and she would make all the repairs. Uh, and in those days, most of the roads she drove on were not paved, so there were a lot of repairs. She changed 11 tires, uh, the axle broke, uh, various other parts of the car needed to be replaced. And um, and she did this drive in 60 days. Uh, 18 of them were spent either resting or waiting for for the weather to clear up. I think it took her 14 days to get across Iowa, which was 500 miles, because she got there in the rainy season, and the roads were were so full of mud that she couldn't she couldn't get very far. Uh, and at one point, she her car had to be pulled out of out of a muddy ditch by a, a horse and wagon. <laughs> so, there was and, also Joan. Yes, Joan. Joan Newton Cuneo was a the first great American woman race car driver, and she started in 1905. and And she was just up for the challenge, and she drove in all kinds of races. There were uh, reliability tours, which were uh, races over normal roads to show the ri- reliability of different makes of cars, and they were sponsored by manufacturers. So those could often go hundreds or even more than a 1,000 miles. She took part in those races. She she raced on beaches, which were where a lot of people did speed racing before uh, actual racetracks were built. Um, but she did race on a, on a racetrack. She once took um, Barney Oldfield, who was the most famous male racer from that period uh, she was she was doing practice runs on a track and he saw her and he asked if he could uh, jump in the car and and you know ride around with her and she was driving so fast during her trial uh, that he finally screamed out can you slow down <laughs> <laughs> so she she was quite an amazing 
woman and and she she was married and um you know that didn't stop her she, i think she had kids at that point and she was um she was quite a an impressive woman and and she had counterparts in england and in europe Dorothy Levitt in England and uh, Camille Dugast in France, and all of them were were quite successful in the first years of automobile racing until they were all banned from the sport because the individual uh, racing uh, organs in in each of these countries finally decided to ban women because they were uh, they were worried that if a woman racer got into an accident or, or god forbid was killed it would turn the public against the sport altogether even though there was no evidence that this ever happened and there were men who were killed in races but they were just so worried about the potential outcry if women were hurt that they decided just to ban them. <laughs> Are you talking about uh, AAA? Was that one organization? AAA, that... uh, actually, yes. And I've been a loyal AAA member for for decades, and I was aghast to, to find that they were the they were the administrator of um, of race of the racing circuit in the United States at the time. And yes, they they voted to institute a ban on women, and the bans were relaxed after World War One because women really proved themselves as, as drivers in World War One, But for the second decade of the 20th century, there were no women in sanctioned races. Some, some women, including Cuneo, uh, would race in, in uh, contests that were not officially sanctioned. Let's talk about the role of the automobile during World War One and how... Uh the idea of women behind the wheel, you know, maybe that was getting more common in the public eye where it wasn't something to criticize. Well, it was really uh, a necessity. Um, what happened was uh, the automobile completely changed the way war was conducted. Um, in in Paris, when France entered, entered World War um, One, they actually commandeered all the private automobiles uh, because they they realized that they could be used to take injured uh, soldiers from from the battlefields. They could bring food, so you wouldn't have to have a horse horse and buggy carrying food for like four or five times the length of time. And <laughs> uh, so the automobile really made a change. As far as women, even before the United States, the United States entered the war in 1917, American women volunteered to go overseas and use their own automobiles to drive uh, injured soldiers. They basically became ambulances. They drove the soldiers uh, to hospitals. They worked under very <laughs> frightening conditions, and, and they did this usually for no pay, um, and and with with great excitement. I mean, this was way more excitement than most women usually had in their lives with bombs uh, uh, blasting around them. Uh, but on the on the home front, when the United States did enter the war, the the country started um, a women's motor corps, where uh, once again they were volunteers, usually with their own cars. But these women drove supplies to 
military bases. They drove injured soldiers who were coming home uh, from the ports to the hospitals. They drove them uh, for recreation when while they rec- were recuperating. They went brought them to church. They brought them to ball games. Um, and they were seen as as a necessity at that point, and nobody was saying women couldn't drive <laughs> they were They were really the the glue on the home front that that kept things going. They were even driving military uh personnel like uh, colonels and and generals uh to meetings. So it really did when the chips were down, <laughs> women really showed up as uh, as drivers and things never went totally backwards although attitudes might not have been as you know liberal as they should have been towards women drivers after that they they were accepted way more than they had been this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Sue Macy. She's the author of a new National Geographic book called Motor Girls, How Women Took the Wheel and Drove Boldly into the 20th Century. Sue, we were talking about the role of women during World War One. Uh, meanwhile, there's the suffragist movement. Tell us about um, how the automobile played a role in this movement uh, for women to gain the voting right. Yes. Well, women quickly realized that this was a great way to communicate their cause. Uh, And I have an example uh, in Illinois when they were having state rallies because the states were often trying to get the vote for women within their state at the same time that there were federal efforts to get uh, the national universal suffrage. So in Illinois, um, some suffragists used their cars to go from city to city and publicize rallies or just hold court uh, standing <laughs> on their on their cars saying you know spreading the word uh, of, about the women's vote and and bringing leaflets and so they really communicated their efforts much more easily there were also a couple of cross country rides especially in 1915 three women set out from, uh, there was a a World's Fair to celebrate the Panama Canal, and these women got a petition going. And and most of the women in the western states did have the vote in uh, state or local elections, but these women wanted to spread suffrage across the whole country. So they got uh, thousands and thousands of signatures um, in a scroll that was rolled up and drove it to President Wilson in the White House, and he did meet with them, but he wasn't quite convinced at that point of, of the need for suffrage. But they all along the journey, they got more signatures, they rallied the troops. Um, so it was really an interesting way to bring the country together. And they did this while roads were still not all paved and they were intrepid, dogged suffragists. You know, there's so many anecdotes of the motor girls, so to speak, uh, in our nation's history. When you open this book, the historical photos are are really uh, compelling. Tell us about just the research that went into finding this kind of history and and able to to republish it in this book. Well, I, I love doing the photo research, and I know a lot of authors don't do their own research, but I learned so much from from the photos and the sources 
there are uh, quite a number of photos from the Detroit Public Library, which has a wonderful national automotive history collection with lots of photos of women. Uh, Joan Newton Cuneo, Alice Ramsey, um, Blanche Stewart Scott, all these early drivers <laughs> um, are, are amply uh, collected in, the, in this library, which is fantastic. So uh, usually you'll find historical treasure troves and there'll be one or two pictures of women, but they really documented women's uh, experiences there. And I also uh, went to individual collectors. They're online. There are amazing sites uh, with uh, automobile advertising uh, history. If I needed a picture of a car, I would go to some of these sites and there would be ads. And I, I contacted the the owners of the site and I, I got a very early license plate from Pennsylvania for that. I, I also always haunt eBay whenever I do a historical uh, book because you can find the magazines with ads there. Um, and it was it was a fun part of the story. And I as I write each chapter, I gather the images usually maybe 50% more than what you end up seeing in the book. But the, my art director, uh, designer, who I've worked with on six books now, um, she has a great eye, and she'll either use what I have or say, you know, I think we need one more uh, image to to supplement this. So, so we uh, we work very well together. There's a lot for uh, readers, uh, young girls and adults, to learn from these pages. Looking back at the last 100 years, Sue, what has changed for women, so-called motor girls of today? First of all, we were lucky enough to get Danica Patrick to write the foreword for the book. And I think it's really interesting because we're talking about these early racers from 100 years ago, and, and we have the most famous female uh, racer today in the book. And, I mean, that's one example. There, uh, Lynn St. James, who was an IndyCar racer, actually has an auto school where she trains young racers, many of them women. Uh, so women are definitely grabbing their piece of pie as far as as the auto racing area. But also, you know, I, I have an epilogue in the book, and as I was writing that, I was thinking about my own experiences because when I bought my first car, which was in the late 70s, uh, you know, my father came with me. I was I was about 22 or something, and uh, and the salesman just looked at my father the whole time, you know. And I don't know if it was my age or just that I was female, but a couple of years ago, I bought my most recent car, and. The, my, the salesman, it was a man again, because the vast majority of auto salesmen are still men. <laughs> um, but he he paid attention, was totally respectful. Maybe the fact that he was younger made a difference. But I think that women are uh, finally appreciated as consumers of automobiles, and we're still not totally there, as I as I give an example in the book, when the CEO of Xerox, who was a woman, went to buy a Porsche, and um, the salesman said, "Well, don't you have to check with somebody first, <laughs> you know, if you could spend all that money?" So, and that was a couple of years ago. So things have not totally changed, but I think that 
the reality is women make money now, serious money, and they are seen as legitimate consumers, which is great. And there's a woman head of uh, GM. So as women rise in the ranks of, of the auto industry, I think it'll only get better for women to be respected. Sue, I have to ask, are there more female drivers on the road today? Yes, since 2005, there have been more female than male drivers in the United States. So I think we finally have taken our rightful place on the roadways, and if men are lucky, we'll let them keep driving too. (laughs) Well, this is a really fascinating book, Sue. Before we go, um, I wanted to ask you, this is a book that's uh, written uh, to capture a young reader's attention. What do you want their takeaway to be? Well, for me, I like to write, uh, this is really a a kind of young adult, so teenagers and and hopefully adults as well. But when I I write for kids, I like to give them context on the world around them because kids today could could believe that, you know, everybody had the Internet, uh, everybody had television or whatever. And the story of how what we take for granted now came to be so uh, common uh, is really fascinating and it's not everything is not always smooth sailing uh, and there were often a lot of uh, admirable people who helped make things so normalized and and for me also I I'm always looking for female role models and I think girls and boys need them so hopefully they'll look at some of the women in this book and and think they were pretty cool. Sue Macy is the author of Motor Girls, How Women Took the Wheel and Drove Boldly into the 20th Century. Sue, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks very much, Lucy. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Malbethanchel. You can go to wmpr.org slash where we live for more about the show. Thanks for listening.